Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Metadata. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 219 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in Ann Arbor. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. Before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsors. First of all, thanks to the very useful Text Expander for sponsoring our show. Communicate smarter with Text Expander, gather, perfect, and share your knowledge. Recall your best words instantly and repeatedly. Learn more at textexpander.com forward slash podcast. We'd also like to thank ServeNow, a nationwide network of trusted, pre-screened process servers. Work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high-volume serves, embrace technology, and understand the litigation process. Visit servenow.com to learn more. In our last episode, we revisited the topic of the Internet of Things and its probable impact on lawyers. And I even suggested that the Internet of Things was quickly becoming an area of technology where lawyers needed to gain knowledge under the ethical rules relating to technology competence. Something for you to think about. In this episode, we take a look at hype around various new technologies how to separate fantasy from reality, and something known as the Gardner hype cycle. Tom, what's all on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we will indeed be looking at technology hype and how to survive in spite of it. In the second segment, we're going to talk about whether it, uh, it might be a good idea to visit your email spam filter from time to time. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. Um, but first up, uh, technology hype. I don't really have much of a lead in here, Dennis. I just want to think, why this topic right now? What's the hype about hype? Well, I think that it could just be the people I follow on social media or, or what I'm seeing in legal tech. But man, there's a lot of negative comments about technology, especially artificial intelligence, blockchain, and other things. I even saw somebody in, in legal tech post about wanting to shoot blockchain in the face if they ever heard it again, especially <laughs> at a, a conference. You know, I, I've gotten upset with technologies and sometimes wanted to, to throw old laptop computers out the window. But geez, I, I, that's to me seems way overboard, especially on uh, a new technology that hasn't had much chance to develop. I've seen people say, if you use AI or blockchain on a slide at a conference, that should just flat out be banned. Or talking about robots, chatbots, other things like that. I, I just don't understand uh, the psychology around that, because I guess I'm generally positive about technology or see see where, it, where it's going. And also as an aside, I, I, Tom, I, I don't know about you, but sort of in our history, when you look at uh, the anti-bloggers and anti-Twitter and anti-social media, people take these strong positions on new technologies. It always seems like in about a, a year from now, there'll be some of the biggest blockchain advocates out there. So uh, that just brings us to hype and sort of like there's the technology, there's what people think about it, and there's what people say about it, and there's what people are kind of screaming at their top of their lungs about. And it's good to 
I think, develop some ways to think about that and sort through what's reality and what's fantasy. Well, and I think before we talk about um, the Gartner hype cycle and what others have said about it, I will briefly race to the defense of the people who want to shoot blockchain in the face, although I would never advocate violence against blockchain or anybody who talks about blockchain. And I'm going to circle back to this in a little bit because I'm going to adopt a theory, someone else's theory, not mine. But what I can actually understand when I see people say they're tired about it is that sometimes in technology and certainly in the legal community, whether you're a legal technologist, whether you're just a lawyer with an interest in technology, there are always going to be people who talk about technology for the sake of talking about technology. You know, it's always been the case that people like to crow about that latest technology to the point where it is unbearable. And it has something to do with the latest new shiny. You know, every time a new technology comes along, lawyers and technologists like to talk about, and you know, I don't know if it's to show their bona fides, to show how much they are, that they're up on the topic. I was trying to think of some examples. And the one, unfortunately, that comes to mind <laughs> was the, the whole hype over the iPad as being a laptop substitute. We're all going to trade in our computers for the iPad. And my gosh, every lawyer, and I was partially on that train. I mean, I talked about how good the iPad was for lawyers to use. I didn't quite go there as far as a laptop replacement, but it was all about iPad, 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 iPad. And suddenly we got comments on Twitter or on other parts of social media about how every legal problem could be solved with an iPad. And when I saw that, I realized, you know what? There's a lot of hype around this that's really not right. I'm generally positive about... <laughs> about AI, about blockchain. Um, but I think that hype for the sake of hype is a thing that I could definitely do with a lot less of. And and I think that as you've decided that we want to talk about today about the, the Gartner hype cycle, there's definitely a reason for this hype. I think it's a natural thing that occurs or that is happens. And I think that's kind of what we want to talk about. Well, I and I guess I, I'm always troubled by people kind of guarding their existing turf a lot and and so being negative about the new thing and saying like show me one example of how the internet's going to help us or you know how how blockchain's going to help us well i, I mean as a mastercard so which uh, in the financial tech or fintech world and people go like show me examples of blockchain i'm going like we've been seeing them for several years now and and uh, identity and other things there's a lot of cool stuff going on. Well, I think real quick, I think it's easy. If we apply this to lawyers, there's always been, ever since I've been in legal technology, there have always been lawyers who like to say, here's why this new technology is going to be dangerous or unethical, or there's something wrong with it. And we need to really be careful about it because lawyers by nature are risk managers. And there are a lot who flock to that thinking that that's how they earn their keep. That's how they let people know. And so as a result, they turn out to look like or be curmudgeons. And frankly, lawyers have always been, a lot of lawyers have always been naysayers around technology. And although that's starting to change, I think there's still plenty of curmudgeons. And I think that's not going to end because it's in the nature of us as lawyers to be skeptical about things and technology more so. And, and I'm not saying that's a right thing or a wrong thing, but I also want to question whether or not it's ingrained into who a lawyer really is. 
And curmudgeonness is frankly a, a marketing strategy for some people. We always use, you know, you and I always used to laugh about some of the the anti-bloggers who had blogs telling lawyers that they should never use blogs and what a terrible thing is. They were at the, well, at the same time, they're gathering all this publicity from themselves, I think generating clients and other interests as well. And you're kind of like, well, if it's such a bad thing, how come how come you're using it so well? Are you just trying to keep other people off a successful platform? But I actually like to hear all the hype because I, I want to understand what the potential outer reaches of technology are because that helps me better understand a new technology and assess it. So anything like cloud, uh, other things like from the early days, I want to say, okay, so what? If, how far do people really imagine this is going to go? And then I can, that will help me learn to assess it and to and put things in into potential. And then, because I think that as with everything else these days, we're reminded every single day, we just have to learn how to read and think critically about news, about anything, whether it's technology, and then make our own decisions and find the ways that we want to investigate those things. Tell me, I jotted down what I called a, a few basic axioms before we turn to this kind of interesting tool called the hype cycle. But I said, I think of three axioms and I'll, I'll let you make some comments on these sort of like, consider the source of anything that you look at, look outside the legal silo when you're when you're considering technology and its potentials. And that notion that we, we actually do tend to overestimate the short-term impact of a given technology and underestimate the long-term impact. So those are sort of my three axioms. Tom, do you have some comments on those? Oh, no, absolutely. I, I totally agree. And although I would probably not say underestimate, it would be more or just don't think about them at all, is that I think that people think more of the short-term impact and don't even consider what might be happening in the future. But I am totally behind you with considering the source, which is, you know, it might be that getting all of those tweets about the iPad for lawyer is annoying, or all those tweets about AI or block chain are annoying to get, but figuring out, you know, what it is that we're talking about. And I think that, you know, not to toot our own horn, but I think that we try to do that. We try to look at these things. I will admit on many occasions that I get onto a podcast with you where I'm not completely convinced of an application of technology to the practice of law that you seem hell-bent on trying to persuade me to. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. But I think that's part of the nature of what we need to do. We need to look at it, you know, with an unbiased eye. We need to understand what the truth is about that and try to separate what the hype is from what the reality is and make your own decisions on that. So let's move to the hype cycle, which was what we wanted to talk about here in, in a way, as I like to say, let's let's kind of go to the Wikipedia for no a better good place. basic summary. So there's this notion of the hype cycle and then a company called Gartner, G-A-R-T-N-E-R, which even if you're a lawyer and uh, any lawyer interested in technology needs to know about Gartner and their publications and the, the analysis they do. But Gartner has a branded version of it. And so, Tom, maybe there's sort of five things and it describes a curve. And let me just, I'll grab the first three maybe, Tom, and then you can grab the last two. But sure. So they call phase one the technology trigger. They're calling it the innovation trigger now. Innovation trigger is what the latest one is saying. Okay. So you, so you have this potential new breakthrough 
kind of you get some early proof of concept, uh, some media interest that starts to really generate some uh, publicity. And oftentimes there's no usable products yet. And it's unclear whether there's anything that's commercially viable as well. So that's sort of phase one. Then you would next see phase two, which is the peak of inflated expectations. So that publicity generates some interest. You start to get some success stories, even though there might be lots of failures. But then you're starting to see people feel they have to be involved in it, but not not even a majority. So you're starting to get a move upward on the curve, and then it starts to slack off into what they call the phase three, which is the, the trough of uh, disillusionment. So people kind of get worried. They want to about it. Uh, interest wanes. People threaten to shoot the technology in the face. The implementations fail to deliver on what people predicted. And you start to see some some shakeout. Investment starts to, to drop. And people wonder whether it's going to happen. And then things start to turn a little bit as we get to phase four, right, Tom? They do. And, and I have to say when I, because frankly, when you mentioned this, I had to learn about it. And, and in learning about it, I, I have to say that these phases of the hype cycle remind me of like looking at place names on the map of the moon, maybe, or in some fantasy book, because they're all these locations. So we, we head first to the peak of inflated expectations. Then we dip down into the trough of disillusionment. And what's interesting about that trough of disillusionment that I learned is that even at the end of the trough, you've even gone past the peak of inflated expectations and, and, and into this, again, trough of disillusionment, you've only got about 5% of adoption at that point. It's still a very low rate of adoption that you have even through this point, which I think is the interesting part about the hype cycle and you talking about overestimating the initial impact and underestimating the long-term impact. But then once we get through that trough, then we start to climb out of the trough to climb, guess what? Another geographical reference, the slope of enlightenment. And that is where people start to find more use cases, where you start to see more cautious investing by conservative investors. Um, more people start to understand the benefits of the technology. It's kind of the phase where it's, let's take a second look at this. Let's take a fresh look and maybe it's time to revisit it again. And then finally, we land on yet another place, the plateau of productivity, which is really a leveling out. It's where people begin to adopt that technology in greater numbers. Although, frankly, it's still only around 20 to 30% of the anticipated audience, but it becomes the time where it becomes an accepted technology, becomes something that people are commonly using, and it is an area where really you'd expect the greatest level of success for those types of technologies at that point in time. So that's your general cycle, and, and I think we're going to probably focus most of our time talking about the actual peak of inflated expectations in that area. Am I right? Yeah. So Gardner comes out with their hype cycle for emerging technologies every year. So at the end of of August 2018, which is after the recording, they'll do the 2018 one. But so we're going to look at the 2017 one. And what's interesting to me is a lot of the, the technologies that people seem to be shouting down these days are, are discouraged with are absolutely at the top of the inflated expectations area. So if you look at, if I look at those, I, I do see blockchain, I see machine learning, you know, I see 
cognitive computing, which is another term for, for artificial intelligence. I see deep learning. I see connected home. I, I see other things like that. And so I think that, that this hype cycle then becomes interesting because then you, you sort of see where these things map and maybe why you're hearing so much about them and wondering why there's not much to show for them. And then if as we move down into the, we go past the trough of disillusionment to where it starts to come up again, it's actually kind of interesting because what's most advanced, sort of the farthest out on the curve, is virtual reality, you know, which you don't hear a lot of people complaining about, and then augmented reality, which start to be, feel like more, they're new, of course, but they feel like more stable technologies. And so their place on the map makes sense. And I guess the other thing that I would say about this chart Tom, is what people say is what you want to try to do is whether you're investing in, in stock and in companies or in the technologies themselves, it's when you get down toward that the bottom of this where it starts to move up, that's when you want to start to put your money in because you do get that maturity. And it it is, I, I think people, it is different, but you'll notice the similarity with the diffusion curve or the adoption curve, early adopter, late adopter curve. So that's an interesting part of this. But I think it's useful, Tom, to me, is just to kind of take a look at this curve for the current year, and that will kind of help you figure out, you know, where a major technology analyst thinks these technologies are in their maturity. Right. And I was surprised to see that pretty much all the things we talk about, at least this time last year, were at that peak of inflated expectations. The Internet of Things, virtual assistants, the connected home, machine learning, blockchain, even autonomous vehicles. They were all actually sort of on the downside of that peak, heading towards that trough of disillusionment. And when you think about the actual value that you're getting from a product from one of these that we're probably still several years or at least a year or two out from really hitting that plateau of productivity where you start to see more adoption and more acceptance. And it's interesting that we're really seeing that stuff. We still have yet to see that even given the amount of attention that some of these platforms are, are getting right now. And then, uh, so I found an article by a guy named Scott Brinker on a, a site called thinkgrowth.org that really goes through and analyzes uh, some of the different ways to think about where things are in the hype cycle. And I just want to hit on, you know, some of the highlights there that, so when, uh, you know, when you're in the area of inflated expectations, the reality is actually far below what's being discussed sort of on all the blog posts and social media and conferences. And then and when you're in the trough of disillusionment, the actual potential is probably sadly underestimated, he says. So uh, people are already starting to look to the next set of things that are uh, you know up at the top of the hype cycle as these technologies people have kind of been disappointed by are now kind of actually being ready to come into use. And so here's some great suggestions. We'll put this in the show notes of when, how you look at things, when you would might want to spend on things, how to consider the likely results. But 
I thought one of the things he talked about was at a peak, like we are on a lot of the things that we have mentioned. He just talks about you want to evaluate the claims carefully, run things as experiments, focus on what you, you actually learned, and really take a more experimental approach. And just don't be distracted by the negative chatter and kind of focus on your practical needs and get some realistic expectations. And it's a great time to learn more about how it can have an impact on you. Well, when I started to do some research about it, I came across this theory that I think is incredibly interesting, and I want to raise it maybe to be controversial. Maybe I'm not being controversial. It's by a guy whose name is Josh Burnoff. He has a website. Because this is a family podcast, I will only say that it's called Without BS. He was a longtime analyst for another agency like Gartner called Forrester. You may have heard of Forrester, and he was an analyst for them for a while. And he sort of compares the Gartner hype cycle to something that I'd never heard of before. Maybe I maybe I'd known about it. I just didn't know what it was called, but it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And what the Dunning-Kruger effect is, essentially it's a psychological state where people who are incompetent at something are unable to recognize their own incompetence. Or maybe the better way to, to put this in terms of, of the hype cycle is you know just enough to perform but not enough to know what you don't know. I, I kind of like to call this the American Idol effect. I used to watch American Idol all the time, watch people come on who um, show up to audition just knowing that their voices are amazing, but in reality, they aren't. And I think what is interesting is that that peak of expectations really is a little bit like the Dunning-Kruger effect. People know just enough about a technology to start talking about it, but they not enough to know what they don't know. And I think that that peak of inflated expectations is about ignorance and confidence. We're still pretty ignorant about some of these technologies, or at least everything that they can do or everything that they're going to mean, or maybe we just don't know what we don't know yet. But what's interesting is, is that because the hype cycle is something that analysts engage in, and it really doesn't stop the pundits and analysts. And frankly, I'll talk about the legal technology bloggers from getting excited about something new because change is exciting. It's something new to talk about instead of how to create a table in Word or how to develop macros in Excel. Nobody in legal technology wants to talk about that anymore. And frankly, in this case, it's more important to spot a trend early on and be wrong about it than to miss the trend. I mean, frankly, I would say the same about our podcast. I'd rather talk about it early and nobody cares. They're not going to go back and listen if we happen to be wrong about something, but we're talking about it early. And I would make the argument that maybe the hype cycle represents an unfortunate way that we look at it, that we look at technology, that we don't give it the chance to evolve, that we that it has to engage in this exercise, but it feels like it's something that gets perpetuated by the analysts, by the legal tech bloggers, by whoever wants to talk about it, because we know just enough about it to be dangerous, but not enough to just wait it out and see where it's going to head. And I don't know if that's controversial or not, but I thought it was an interesting argument. No, I think that I think that is a, a really interesting argument. And there are, you know, there are pros and cons of this approach. There are also other things, as Tom mentioned, that tool that I use a really simple tool as well that anybody can use, which is Google Trends. So you can, you know, you just kind of see how much something is being talked about in the, the Google search results. And there's an easy way, a tool called Google Trends, so we'll map that. So I was speaking last year about artificial intelligence and law. And so one of the things I did was I went to Google Trends and I thought that I would just, I would do a graph and I what I expected 
was if I went back about 15 years, there would be like this hockey stick curve so that now like dimensions of AI would be like the highest of all time. And what had actually happened, and it traces the history of AI, was that last fall, it wasn't even as high as it has been at a couple different points in the 15 years where there was a lot of interest in AI. But what was different when I went into it is if I looked at machine learning, then there was a big jump in the last few years. And that can give you a little bit of insight into what's going on and where the interests are, and that can be helpful. So I think the hype cycle, some of the other things can be useful to you. I think it will give you a, a good way to see at least what's on the radar and maybe why you're hearing so much about some things and then to make smart decisions about it. So I, I think it can be a really useful tool. But Tom, I, I left a note in the script that I know that you want, will want to talk about is the analysis of the, the Gardner hype cycle since uh, 2000 showed something uh, that might be a little surprising, don't you think? Oh, we mean the fact that very few technologies actually have a hype cycle, that um, most of the technologies were not identified early in their adoption cycles. I, I find that, well, I, I guess I find that very surprising. When I look at the current hype cycle, I sort of feel like it's covering most of the current hype technologies. Like, although I guess if it's not being hyped, I don't know about it yet. So maybe, well, maybe it's something that we're yet to see. So I would say just keep these things in, in mind. It could be useful tools, but what you want to look at is what the actual data is showing you and then look at practical applications that are being tried. Look at them as experiments, see what are then become uh, successful and what results you get from them. But it's a great way to kind of uh, take a look at what the coming technologies are. And that can be useful to our listeners in many different ways. Well, and that's what I was going to say is that we try to cover most of the things that are on the hype cycle on this podcast. But if you want to really get an understanding of what's the up and coming technologies, you know, what as a lawyer do I need to be aware of? Uh, you know, if we if we really take that duty of technological competence to its farthest extreme and we start thinking about what technologies should we know about, just taking a look at the hype cycle and seeing where things are on the curve, understanding what their position on the curve means for for what is likely to happen to them in the next couple of years is a really good way to get started, to understand what's important to be aware of, what are the things maybe you don't need to be totally aware of yet, what things are getting ready to pass you by. I think it's a good reference tool to use for just being aware of what's out there and what's to come. All right, before we go on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsors. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. Text Expander helps you communicate smarter. You get home from an event where you've met some potential clients. You create a Text Expander snippet with a follow-up message, use fill-in fields for the contact name and custom topic, quickly produce personalized emails to everyone by expanding and filling in your snippet, share your snippet with colleagues, and everyone gets done faster. 
Visit textexpander.com forward slash podcast for 20% off your first year. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. So incredibly, in 2018, Tom and I were actually talking the other day about spam and spam filters. And, you know, spam filters have gotten so good, we kind of take them for granted. And we're no longer saying things like, I want to shoot spam in the face if I ever hear about it again. <laughs> uh, it's, not but... hyped, it's not hyped, Dennis. It's, <laughs> it's, off, so, it's off the hype cycle. So uh, I will admit to this that on occasion, every couple of months, I take a quick look through my spam folder just to see if it traps something I would have wanted to, to, to see. And I would say for several years, I, I just marveled at what a great job the Gmail spam filter does. But in the two most recent passes I did, I really wasn't happy with the choices it was making. You know, not that they were big things, but there were a lot of things going into spam I didn't expect, including some things that, uh, you know, newsletters I subscribed to that it kind of sporadically would pull something over, which would surprise me. So, Tom, we've been talking about this a little bit over the last week or so. Have I convinced you last week that uh, spam filters are slipping a little bit or do you still think that people are pretending uh, when they tell you that their spam filters are now being so aggressive, they just happened to grab your specific email. It's definitely the latter. I'm not convinced. Um, although, uh, so here's 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 my story. Um, I actually, for the past, I don't know, couple of years, every day, I was getting in the habit, right or wrong, that when I kind of clean up my email every day, I would also go, and, and this would just be on my Gmail account, I'd go into my spam folder. I only get maybe... 10 or 20 spam messages a day, I would look through them real quick and I would just delete them. I wouldn't even let the Gmail spam filter delete them automatically after 30 days. I've stopped doing that since then. But I, there was a time when I was going every single day and looking in there. And I have to say, it did a really good job of the, I guess I would call the false positives. It really didn't put that much into my spam folder that didn't already belong there. And I will say that the emails that did get in there by mistake I would call honest mistakes. They were usually vendor promotions. They were marketing, they were sales, they were from somebody trying to sell me something. And so I wasn't upset or offended or had a problem seeing all of that. I would call that an honest mistake by the spam filter because I could see that happening. Now, what you're talking about, Dennis, is, is somebody who told me that they never saw my email because it was in their spam filter. And I can't remember the last time that a person-to-person -person email got caught in a spam filter. And I just, I don't believe it. I just don't believe it's possible uh, these days. Somebody, if, if there's somebody out there who can convince me that it's happening, then I will stand corrected. But I will tell you, in preparation for the podcast, I went out there to try to look and see, you know, what's the current state of spam filter accuracy? I, can't, I, I found a study where most of the spam filters that were tested came in at between 94 and 99 and a half percent accurate in capturing stuff. And, and I think that's really pretty good. So I will have to say, Dennis, you're alone on this one in the podcast. I'm feeling pretty decent about the state of my spam filter. Well, Tom, I think it's not so much that I think that spam filters are failing 
I just think it's worth taking closer look at them. And as you mentioned, there, there's a range of effectiveness, let's say between 95% and 99%. I feel like maybe it's slipped down a little bit more toward the lower end of that range, which is still extremely effective. And that's that's happened in six months, the last six months or so. And, and I've just noticed that the last few times I've gone through my spam filter, as I said, some of the things surprised me. It would seem like the tools and the algorithm these days would be able to figure out that if you actually subscribed to an email newsletter, then certain random issues of that email newsletter shouldn't be sent over to the spam filter. So I know there's, it just seems a bit more aggressive in ways that uh, are hard to understand. So that's one thing. The filtering of political or electioneering content, while not a big deal to me, was a little troubling. And I, I could see how that, that could upset some people, especially in the highly charged environment we have these days. So I think that for me, it's another one of these places with technology where you kind of grow a little complacent and you think that it, technology is doing a great job. And, and I think this is one of these places where it's worth doing a little experiment, maybe over the next three months, once a month, just do a little run through of your spam folder and seeing what it's grabbing. And maybe it becomes something that you do on a regular basis uh, to go through that and to make sure there aren't things that are missed. Now it's time for our parting shots. That one tip website or observation you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. So those of you who are longtime listeners to the podcast will know that I am obsessed with my smart home devices. And I started out with the Amazon Echo. I graduated to the Google Home and have, have loved it ever since. One of my favorite Echoes that I had was the Echo Show, which was basically Alexa with a screen. And I could see things and it would display information on the screen rather than just tell it to me. And all I could think to myself was I couldn't wait until Google made something similar with the Google Home. Well, Google didn't do it, but Lenovo did. And I this week received my Lenovo Smart Display, and I cannot have enough great things to say about it. It has all the smarts of a regular Google Home, but it has a screen on it. And I can, it shows my Google Photos when it's not doing anything for me. Um, if I want to look for directions, it'll show me a map. If I ask it to show me pictures of things, it will. I set a timer. I usually set a timer in the kitchen when I'm cooking something. This time it showed the timer on the screen so I could glance over and see it rather than have to talk to it all the time. It'll play videos. I can ask it to play YouTube and watch it on there. I really haven't started exploring everything that it can do, but it it is a, and it's a swipe touch screen too, so I can touch it and, and swipe things around and it'll, it'll show you, I will tell you that one of the most amazing things is the, the cooking feature. You can have it bring up a recipe and it will go step by step and keep that step on the screen until it's time. And then you just tell it to move on. It'll move on to the next step with the next ingredients. It's really a great extension of how Google is moving with its Google Assistant. And um, I'm really liking it so far. It's the Lenovo Smart Display. Tom, it sounds like the uh, the virtual assistants are starting to take the place of headphones in, in your your world. Yeah, I'm, I'm done with headphones for a while. We're moving on. My, I have two parting shots. Uh, so one comes from LLRX.com, which is a great 
site that's been around for a long time, focused on uh, law librarians primarily, but just tons of great information put together by our friend Sabrina Pacifici. And uh, I can't recommend LLRX.com enough. Um, but I wanted to point to one article today, or a recent post. It's called The Six Types of Cyber Attacks to Protect Against in 2018 by Lizzie Carden. And I like it because it's a, it's a great little intro resource on some of the standard cyber attacks. And it explains them in plain language and makes some suggestions about uh, what to do with them. So, I mean, briefly, it's talking about malware, it's talking about phishing, man-in-the-middle attacks, uh, distributed denial-of-service attacks, cross-site scripting, and SQL injection attacks. And if you read this article, you'll have a sense of what those are. And I think that that can be really helpful to, to make you aware of what dangers are actually out there. And it may help you set your strategy and your priorities in dealing with cybersecurity in this year. So, so I'm not saying it's the complete resource, but I think it's a great Intropolis and like many other things on LLRX.com, I highly recommend it. The, the second parting shot is something you'll hear from uh, Tom and I over the next couple of months, but uh, the College of Law Practice Management is having its uh, 2018 Futures Conference in Boston, October 25th and 26th. Tom and I will be presenting on cybersecurity in connection with collaboration tools. We're excited about that presentation and the entire program, which does so focus on cybersecurity. So it might be something you want to put on your agenda as an event to go to, but you'll hear more about that as it gets closer. Yep. We'd love to see you there. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site, where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, reach out to us on LinkedIn or Twitter, or leave us a voicemail at 720-441-6820. We'd love to get your questions to cover on our next podcast. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. And you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. And we'll see you next time for another episode of the Kennedy Mile Report on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network. <laughs>